National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, September 6th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security challenges and opportunities. Our show today will combine two topics that should interest everyone concerned about it and interested in American national security. The first topic is this concept of grand strategy, including what it is, how it's crafted and implemented, and what we hope to accomplish through a coherent strategic plan inside the grand strategy framework. The second topic we'll discuss today is the competition between the United States and China for influence in Latin America and the Caribbean regions. Both geographic spaces are vital for American national security interests, and both are areas very much in play between the U.S. and China right now. Our guest is perfectly positioned to enlighten us on these two topics. Ryan Seberg is director of the Americas Program and head of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also an adjunct professor at the Catholic University of America and a visiting research fellow at the University of Oxford's Changing Character of War program. His research focuses on U.S.-Latin America relations, authoritarian regimes, armed conflict, uh, conflict uh, strategic competition, uh, trade and development issues. He also studies Latin America's criminal groups and the region's governance and security challenges. Uh, previously, Dr. Berg was a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he helped lead its Latin America Studies program. Dr. Berg has served as a research consultant to the World Bank. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Brazil and a visiting doctoral fellow at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. He's lived and worked in Peru and Brazil and is an expert member of the Global Initiative uh, Against Transnational Organized Crime and the Urban Violence Research Network. Dr. Berg has been published in a variety of peer-reviewed academic and policy-oriented journals. He's peered, he has appeared on Voice of America and National Public Radio and has testified for, before both the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Dr. Berg obtained a Bachelor of Arts in Government and Theology from Georgetown University and followed that up with both a, a Master in Philosophies, Philosophy and a Doctorate in Political Science, as well as a Master of Science in Global Governance and Diplomacy from the University of Oxford. Reinberg is fluent in Spanish and Portuguese and has a working knowledge of French and Slovenian. Professor Reinberg, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be on with you and all of your listeners. And where are you sitting today? I'm coming to you from uh, Zurich, Switzerland. I, I travel a lot for my job, so greetings uh, greetings to those who might be listening uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, and you know, for folks like me who are sitting in the afternoon, good morning to you, good afternoon to folks who are in my hemisphere. So, Ryan, I got to ask, I understand you're director of the Americas program and whatnot. Uh, you're fluent in Spanish and Portuguese, working knowledge of French. All of that makes great sense for somebody who's focused on the Americas. How, are, how do you have a working knowledge of Slovenian? <laughs> well, sometimes uh, crazy things happen and, and you meet your significant other. Ah. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we tend to uh, try to, to speak uh, Slovenian in, in the house and uh, there's no better way to learn a language than to just jump into the deep end. And so uh, some of my in-laws are not uh, fluent in English, and my wife's grandmother is, is certainly not. So uh, I had to learn it, and uh, I had to take the, that, that deep, deep plunge. Uh, it's much different 
than some of the other languages that I'd learned in the past, especially for, for professional pursuits like Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, for those of, of your listeners who have ever tried to learn a Slavic language, they'll know the, uh, the, the, the trials and tribulations of the grammar and all of the, the, uh, the endings, the suffixes, the prefixes, and so on. It's, it's quite a complex undertaking. Well, it's good to have that background with the other languages uh, when you're trying to learn that fourth one. I should say, the really, well, yeah, the fourth one. So, uh, Dr. Berg, let's go ahead and get started. We have a lot of, a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Can, can you give us kind of a rundown on what that program is, uh, what it hopes to accomplish at CSIS, and, and maybe some idea of the things people inside that program produce on a regular basis? Well, first, John, I, I think it's important to just tell the listeners what CSIS is, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I know you've had some of my colleagues on the show before. Uh, CSIS is a, is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank uh, that was originally started uh, in the 1960s in the middle of the Cold War. It had an early link to, to Georgetown, uh, though we're now uh, independent. And as a D.C.-based think tank, um, and as one of the best-known ones, we really think of our audience in D.C. as the Congress and the White House. We, we really try to shape the national discussion, put out research pieces in the form of policy briefs, papers, commentaries. We engage with the media as we're having this discussion now, John. We'll go uh, on TV to explain things. We have our own in-house podcast. So we try to meet people, as I always say, we try to meet people where they consume information. And that's a pretty diverse space these days. The Americas program is the only program within that center that addresses uh, and writes on themes in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, we're a small team. We're six full-time staff. We usually have a cohort of about three interns uh, in the spring, summer, and in the fall. And we cover about six different th thematic priorities. The first is uh, talking about authoritarianism in the region. Some of the countries that will come up probably later in our discussion today, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, as well as some of the issues of democratic backsliding that we've seen in the region in recent years. The second thematic program pillar that we have is economic development. Uh, it's something that you encounter every time you, you have discussions about Latin America. It's something we need to cover. The region is looking for uh, economic development. The third pillar is what we're going to discuss today mostly, the long-term impact of China's rise, uh, the relevance of, of Russia and other extra-hemispheric actors for the region. The fourth uh, thing that we address is security. Uh, those of, of you all who have traveled to the region know that security is always a, a challenge throughout. Uh, so transnational criminal organizations, something that's pretty high up on our radar. Uh, fifth is governance challenges and the issue of democracy in the region, weak rule of law, corruption, all of which contributes to migration and inequality, human rights violations. And the sixth pillar, which is something we've started looking at more recently from a programmatic perspective, is the pretty poor state of civil-military relations in quite a few countries, uh, which should concern us from a number of perspectives, democracy, institutions, rule of law, and so on. So our program is, uh, is pretty diverse. And again, we're a small team, and we, we cover a region of 35 countries, so we try to do as best we can. Yeah, it, it's it's actually a pretty big area to try and cover with with such a small team. What was it about uh, Latin America that attracted you to study the Central and South American regions and the Caribbean as as well? Your language skills skills obviously lend themselves well to studying uh, the region. 
Uh, was was there some sort of a catalyst in your youth that led you down this path, or, or did you find your calling later in your academic pursuits? Well, I definitely say I found it later in my my academic pursuits. I would say as an undergraduate, I was more interested in domestic politics. Uh, I interned on the Hill. Uh, for those of your listeners uh, who might care to know, I'm from the the neighboring state of Wisconsin. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, so don't don't hold it against me, please. Uh, when Wisconsin was having its moment, you know, in in in, in international and, and domestic politics, uh, I worked for all of the the major figures from Wisconsin. Ryan, Scott Walker, and so on, Mark Green. Uh, so I, I was really, you know, felt more drawn to, to domestic politics initially. In graduate school, however, um, I, I really started honing a focus on democracy and governance issues. And what interested me about Latin America was not just the linguistic match, which you've noted, John, but also the, the, the fact that Latin America as a region seems to have the democracy piece down. In the Inter-American Democratic Charter that was signed uh, on September 11th, 2001, all of the countries in the region except for Cuba pledged to uphold democracy as a right of the peoples of the Americas. You can't find any other region that's made that rhetorical commitment and uh, a commitment in, in the form of a, a clear document to democracy the same way that Latin America and the Caribbean have. So the democracy piece they have but the governance piece, the other part of my studies that I got quite interested in, seems to be a perennial challenge uh, in the region. And so it seemed to be a good fit with my thematic areas that I was honing as a graduate student. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into our, our subject matter for today, and that's Central and South America and the Caribbean. You, you refer to that region as, as Latin America and the Caribbean, or LAC, L-A-C, countries. I know that uh, geographic, geographic area, is it's pretty huge. In fact, we have a, a four-star general, General uh, Laura Richardson from the U.S. Army, who commands U.S. Southern Command, and her area of responsibility covers that entire region, ex except for Mexico, obviously. That's part of Northcom. So I understand if you want to keep the answer to this first question a little bit broad, uh, we're going to dive deeper into the topic throughout the rest of our show. But can you kind of give us just a bit of a sense of how things are right now in the LAC, Latin America and Caribbean? Uh, maybe a sense of how stable the nations are in the region. Briefly tell us which countries are most concerning due to international challenges uh, or perhaps even outside influence. Well, I'd start by by, by starting with uh, where I mentioned my interest first started in, in the region, which is democracy and authoritarianism issues. So we, we have that divide in the region. We have uh, countries like Venezuela, like Nicaragua, like Cuba, which are far more open to some of that foreign influence uh, and serving as a as a beachhead for some of that foreign influence vis-a-vis -vis challenging the United States than than some of our democratic partners and allies in the region. Um, politically speaking, I would say you can also break down the region within within the democratic countries. Uh, seven of the most populous countries in the region, so the ones with the biggest population, are currently governed by leftist governments. Um, and, and that has had a particular flavor or impact on the way that we relate to the region and some of our foreign policy pursuits and strategies. Um, I would say that you, you cannot describe the region as it currently stands without talking about the, the experience that it had during COVID-19. Uh, COVID was, was absolutely horrible uh, throughout the entire world, of course, but in Latin America and the Caribbean, it had a particularly devastating impact. Uh, there was a period of time in 2021 where Latin America was punching above its weight for all the wrong reasons. 
Um, the region represents about 8% of the global population. And for a while during the pandemic, uh, about half a year, it was representing about a third of all global mortality. So again, disproportionate number of, of folks uh, dying from COVID. We saw during COVID uh, a lot of what is currently roiling the region's politics, corruption, poor health infrastructure, poor public health strategy, uh, the inability to get vaccines to people because of because of infrastructure and so on. And that's had an impact on post-COVID politics as well, uh, which is to say it's led to a profound anti-incumbent sentiment mm -hmm. in the region. So in terms of analyzing elections these days, the most important thing to analyze is not necessarily on the left-right continuum. Uh, it's important when we look at how governments are governing but it's less important in terms of predicting who might win and which way voters might go. Uh, the most important thing in the region these days is not to be an incumbent. Uh, the region has had something like 15 elections, national elections, in the, since, since uh, the COVID period. And, in, and incumbents or incumbent parties have won exactly one of those elections. And that was in Paraguay, where the ruling Colorado party has had a basically uninterrupted period of rule since 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 the 1950s, save for one presidency in the, in the 2000s. Uh, so not exactly a very good example to, to say that it broke the, it broke the trend. Um, and, and economically speaking, you know, the region is desperate for development. It's looking for a partner to help it move forward out of what many countries would consider to be their current middle income trap and get into that upper middle income and upper income category. So that's how I would, I would describe the region and I would say, you know, you have the, the countries, again, that are more on the authoritarian side of the political continuum, far more open to foreign influence, the countries that have uh, more consolidated democratic practices, less open to, to foreign influence. But even within those democratic countries, uh, for the topic of today's conversation, they've found fruitful relationships with China that have showed us cracks in their systems and that have showed us that they're actually more exposed than, than we previously thought. Well, that's a good setup, uh, and we'll get uh, we'll get to these topics in just a moment. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Ryan Berg for this, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he heads up the Americas program. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so before our short break for our station identification, Dr. Reinberg, you, you'd covered a summary of the state of play across uh, Central and South America and the Caribbean. It's a large region with critical economic connections for the United States in, in many regards, but that region is also economically connected to other nations around the world. Uh, we've also seen diplomatic and even security inroads made with many of these nations uh, in, in the LAC, uh, Latin America and Caribbean, uh, by China, Russia, even Iran, and others with whom we currently share a how should I say, a difficult foreign policy relationship. Uh, one of the reasons I asked you to join me uh, for this show is because you penned a thoughtful article on crafting an American grand strategy for Central and South America and the Caribbean. And I'd like to focus uh, much of our next two segments on this topic. First, what was the catalyst for you to consider the challenges of, a, of an American grand strategy uh, for what is essentially the Southcom uh, Southern Command uh, area of responsibility? And, and how did you go about developing your ideas that eventually made it into that, uh, that article? Well, it's a fantastic question, John. I, I think the, the first thing that, that I would say is, 
like any wonky think tank person, <laughs> I read the documents that come out of the U.S. government when they publish them. I anticipate them. You know, I wait for them uh, with bated breath the same way that many of us do. And then I read them and consume them immediately as soon as, as they come out. And I've always been struck in, in these important documents that each administration is responsible for producing, how little Latin America and the Caribbean figures in any of these, the national defense strategy document, the national security strategy document. It's remarkable to me uh, the, the fact that the region that's contiguous to us, that's most important, arguably, for our national security, our economic prosperity, our democratic values, features hardly at all in, in, in these documents. It seems like a major oversight. And for me, it was important to contribute to that discussion of what Latin America and the Caribbean should look like uh, in the future and what our aims and goals should be in the region and really supplement what I saw as, as lacking in these uh, these two very important documents. Um, when I say lacking, I mean Latin America and the Caribbean features about a page and a half to two pages max in both of these documents. And much of the language that's used to describe the region and U.S. aims is really quite trite. It's simplistic. It's it's surface level. Um, you know, it, there's usually a throwaway line in there that says, you know, no region is more important for the United States national security and prosperity than Latin America and the Caribbean. And then it spends 50 pages elaborating U.S. policy in, in the Indo-Pacific and only a page and a half to two pages on, on Latin America and the Caribbean. So Judging by page numbers and the amount of thought that's gone into it, uh, we don't match rhetoric with with action. And so that that was the first thing. The second thing, and, and on a very practical level, I would say that there is really something to what I call the tidy neighborhood theory. Um, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean is the is the source of our ability to project power and influence further afield. And so, if you want the U.S. to have a strategy that puts us uh, in, in the lead in the Indo-Pacific or have us be able to project power in Europe, uh, you need to have a, an economically prosperous, integrated, democratic Latin America at home. If our neighborhood, our shared neighborhood gets messier, so does our ability to project our power and influence further, further afield. So I think from that very simple standpoint, I thought of this exercise as kind of correcting what I saw as lacking in some of these important documents that come out of the USG. So you titled your paper, Insulate, Curtail, Compete, Sketching a U.S. Grand Strategy in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I want to dissect that title a, a little bit and then get into the specifics. Uh, wh what do you mean by the terms insulate, curtail, and compete? And, and how do you define those terms uh, with regard to a U.S. Grand Strategy for the LAC region? The, the way that I went about it is I was thinking— we hear about all of these different policies that we should pursue in the Latin American Caribbean region, but nobody ever steps back to kind of think, how would we categorize them? And can we come up with clean categories that make sense and are complementary to one another? Uh, and so the, the piece insulate, curtail, compete are the three categories or buckets, if you will, of potential strategies, uh, of potential policies rather. And when policymakers are thinking about things to do in the region, how to address particular policy uh, policy challenges, uh, I urge them to think about how their policy choices would fit into each of these categories, each of these buckets. So in the insulate bucket, um, we have seen China in particular uh, be very adept at finding weak points 
uh, in not just authoritarian regimes, like I mentioned, but also in, in rather consolidated democratic countries, even like Brazil, uh, which don't have democratic deficits, but have robust democratic institutions, or Chile, or Argentina, uh, find those weaknesses and then use the asymmetric power differential to exploit it to strategic ends uh, for them. Uh, and in Argentina, I would say, you know, the, the best example that I can give you is the real physical presence of, of the PLA. Um, they've parlayed the, those weaknesses into the real physical presence of the PLA in the form of a space station in the middle of the Patagonian desert, uh, which is run by the PLA. Uh, they keep the perimeter on the on the facility and in the, in the public, um, uh, in the media, at least, it's described as a black box. The Argentines don't go inside. Nobody else goes inside. We don't know what's what's happening there. Uh, and many suspect that there's there's sort of espionage activities going on there. So that's a physical example of a way in which the Chinese found a weak point in an otherwise consolidated, robust democracy, and they were able to leverage it for uh, for, for you know real military gains in in the region. So insulate means to to look at the full democratic architecture of a particular country, institutional architecture, and to help it uh, plug some of those gaps. You've got weaknesses all across the region in terms of party infrastructure, in terms of separation of powers, checks and balances, um, campaign finance, all sorts of things that make elites in the region open to elite capture. Uh, so insulate strategies would be all of those policies that the U.S. government pursues uh, to try to fortify democracy and further democracy in the region. A lot of it are, are the policies we've heard about already, working with political parties in the region, uh, working to help uh, uh, reduce corruption in the region, working to help fortify police and militaries and so on. The curtailment category or bucket is really attempting to make U.S. policymakers think about what are those three to five areas where we would like to be the preferred partner, where we would like to be able to go to our partners and allies in the region and say, don't go with China, go with the United States. Th these necessarily have to be limited because we know that the message of don't go with China across the board is not an attractive offer, particularly when we're not there to offer them everything that they're looking for. But I think we should be thinking about those three to five areas, and I think that they should be areas that we feel will be critical to global economic governance in the future, to the future of economic growth. Maybe they involve lots of privacy and data, uh, potential cyber uh, implications. So those areas are really critical areas where the U.S. wants to be the preferred partner, and the curtailment element is going to partners and saying, don't go with China. Curtail your activity with China in this, in this sense, and choose the U.S. as your preferred partner. And, and my guess is, uh, as you're thinking about that that challenge, we, we have to be seen as as not being the imperialist hegemon, <laughs> but r rather an actual partner in this process uh, where we offer, uh, we're curtailing China's influence by offering a better deal. Is that right? And that that's perfect. Perfect segue, John, into the third bucket, which is compete. So ideally, when you when you make a curtailment request of a partner, you need to understand that that entails asking them to make a domestic political sacrifice. Explain to your people why China isn't the best provider of this particular good or service or partnership and why the U.S. is the one to go with when in the past you may have been burned by, by the U.S. And um, 
you need to be able to ideally marry that curtailment bucket with competition strategies, which is to, to look at the full scale of, of government resources that we have, that we allocate to the region and put those to use. For example, in ICT sector infrastructure, telecommunications, we don't like the fact that Huawei has a significant hold on, on the markets of a lot of Latin American and Caribbean countries, uh, uh, telecoms. But uh, we've been particularly bad at being able to offer subsidies to competitors that would be better on data protection uh, and better on, on espionage. We haven't married that category of curtailment with, with competition to make, for example, Nokia or Ericsson uh, to be viable alternatives. So what the region hears from us is a curtailment request without actually getting any of the competition. They hear, don't go with Huawei but they don't see any money forthcoming to make the competitors actually a proper alternative. And so in the end, as so often happens with many developing countries, the, the, the way that they decide is on price. And you can't compete with Huawei because of the subsidies that the PRC puts into it. So here on National Security This Week, we, we've, we've actually spent entire shows. Uh, I had Stephen Walt on here, a couple other folks as well, uh, where we just talked about the term grand strategy. And what it means in the context of the use of uh, of the tools of national power, diplomacy, the power of information, military and economic power, uh, also referred to as DIME in the in the national security lexicon. For our listeners to understand how you've framed this paper, how do you define grand strategy? So the paper defines grand strategy as looking at a whole of government, whole of society approach. Let's take all of the tools that we have at our disposal, which the USG has not been very good at in in the past. Not only in, in not thinking about you know how to bring all of those considerable tools to bear, but actually harnessing them. Uh, and let's think about how we put that into a strategy that has a defined timeline. And then let's adumbrate an actual uh, uh, like pan, you know let, let's put a panorama together of what we want the region to look like in X number of years. And so the paper does not uh give an image of a region that is devoid of China. Uh, it does not say that the Chinese presence everywhere and always is corrosive and needs to uh, needs to be defeated. It's a very selective approach to competition, mostly because it's it's coming from a very realistic perspective, looking at the past several years of what our resource allocations from a US government perspective have been, toward Latin America, which is to say not necessarily a priority region, and assuming that budgets are largely going to stay the same, if not, get smaller, especially if there's another security contingency, say a, a, an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. Uh, I consider Latin America and the Caribbean most likely to be one of those regions that will suffer when USG pulls resources from the Western Hemisphere and, and diverts it to the Indo-Pacific. So the, the strategy really tries to start from that perspective and say, what can we do to be better partners? What can we do to, to further this image of what we want Latin America and the Caribbean to look like in say the decade, decade and a half period? And it doesn't have no China in it. It just has a region that's far more knowledgeable and aware of some of the corrosive impacts of engagement with China and that has been better protected against some of those power asymmetries, which we've seen in the PRC uh, so adept at, at leveraging for their own gain. Yeah, the, China has proven to be very, very good at applying their tools of national power all around the globe. Uh, it, it's, it's really very, very impressive. Uh, so, Dr. Reinberg, we're going to take just a short uh, commercial break here at the midpoint of our show. 
uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here on National Security This Week with our guest, Dr. Ryan Berg from the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. We're discussing a, a U.S. grand strategy for Latin America and the Caribbean in a time where every corner of the world has been a contest for influence between the United States and China. Uh, so I got a couple of questions. I want to ask one last question before we really kind of dive in on, on the China challenge. Uh, do you see, are there other other nations around the world that that have gained a significant foothold in Latin America and the Caribbean? And if so, what, what are those nations and, and what are they trying to accomplish with those footholds? Sure, John, I would I would highlight the presence of, of three countries uh, in, in this particular order. First is, is Russia. Uh, again, the PRC is not the only player in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. The first, I, I think, is Russia. Uh, we all know that it, it maintains historical relationships with several countries like Cuba and Nicaragua and the region, going all the way back to the Cold War. It's developed a far closer working relationship since the early 2000s with Venezuela uh, and Hugo, starting with Hugo Chavez, now with Nicolas Maduro. Uh, but there's Russian influence in other parts of, of the world, as, uh, other parts of the region as well, in Bolivia, for example. And also, I would highlight in the information space, uh, Sputnik. Uh, and RT and Espanol have tremendous number of followers on social media, and they are able to pump out messages that are very, very favorable to the Kremlin and able to, to do what I call neutralize uh, the region in terms of its mobilizing around human rights issues, around international law, around uh, sovereignty violations, such as clearly the case in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, in order to silence the region from pronouncing on, on, on some of these issues. And so Russia is a, certainly a player uh, in the region, but it's mostly in the military, military space and in the information space and what I would call regime protection, especially for some of these regimes that are a little bit less stable uh, and, and paranoid about the state of their authoritarian architecture. Uh, Russia is not a major economic player and will become even less of an economic player as the sanctions continue to bite. Another player I'd uh, recognize is Iran particularly in some of those countries where there's a large uh, a presence of, of sort of Lebanese and Syrian uh, immigrants based on historical immigration patterns. So uh, there's a community in, in Venezuela that's given Iran some influence. There are communities in Brazil and Argentina. Uh, Iran has, again, less of a role than, than Russia, uh, but it maintains contact with uh, cells of Hezbollah throughout various parts of, of the region. It's also involved in, in messaging campaigns and in the information space and selectively in the military to military space. So there are, are reports of Iran using uh, Venezuela, for example, to uh, to make some of its uh, Mohadra drones, which are then uh, shipped uh, to Russia for its its efforts in, in Ukraine. And then the, the third country I'd highlight is Turkey. Uh, Turkey has had a very what I would consider to be a problematic relationship with Venezuela, uh, in, in particular, uh, taking uh, or, or serving as an offloading point 
for some of Venezuela's uh, illegally mined gold, uh, conduit for, for, for some of that gold to, to get onto the international market. So th those would be the other actors that I would highlight in the region. But the important thing is that none of them uh, approximate the multifaceted approach and the multifaceted forms of power that the PRC have uh, in, in the region. So your paper, uh, once again, the title is uh, Insulate, Curtail, Compete, Sketching a U.S. Grand Strategy in Latin America and the Caribbean. It, fo it obviously focuses very heavily on China's influence in the LAC, as you call it. Uh, you also, uh, back in uh, May of 2021, provided a statement before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission uh, titled China in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, excellent uh, written uh, statement uh, here, very comprehensive. Maybe you could give us a, a comprehensive overview of the ways in which China is spreading its influence across Latin America and Caribbean. Uh, and what are, what are China's goals? Maybe you could weave that into this, uh, this part of our discussion. Great. I think to start with the goals, and then I'll, then I'll elaborate at how they're doing it. I, I think um, China, there were three distinct phases of Chinese engagement with Latin America and the Caribbean. In the early 2000s, stretching all the way until 2010, um, Chinese engagement with the region was really haphazard. I wouldn't call it strategic at that point. There were complementary. There was complementarity between what some of the region's economies were offering and what China needed at that time, particularly when its economy was growing in the double digits year over year. Um, I don't trust Chinese statistics anymore on growth. <laughs> I don't think you should either. Uh, because really the National Statistics Agency is, is an arm of the CCP's propaganda. But back then, I actually think that China was growing at 10 12% year over year. And so what did China need? Well, it needed to feed 1.5 billion people. And quite a few countries in Latin America and the Caribbean are agricultural powerhouses. Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. So that complementarity existed there between those economies and, and the Chinese economy. Uh, China also needed minerals, it needed commodities, it needed fuel, it needed oil, natural gas, it needed minerals to be able to sustain that level of economic growth. Well, Latin America and the Caribbean has had minerals for hundreds of years. It's one of the reasons why the Spanish came, it's one of the reasons why the Portuguese came uh, and, and did what they did. So that level of complementarity really kick-started the China-Latin America relationship. But there's not really any level of strategy at, at this point. It's haphazard. China is vacuuming up as much commodity as they can get, and Latin America is happy to provide it, especially because in some of these sectors, they're competitors with the United States. We don't need Brazilian soy, for example. We've got Iowa. We've got Minnesota. We've got Wisconsin. We've got places, parts of the country where I'm from and where you're speaking from, right? So... Uh, that level of complementarity kickstarts the relationship. Then in the second phase of the relationship, uh, things get more strategic. China starts using, and, and this phase I would say lasts from about 2010, 2011 until 2018. China starts using its development and policy banks and state-owned enterprises as ways of reaching out to countries to form a greater relationship as opposed to just becoming a large, important trade partner for a number of, of, of these countries. Uh, and that kickstarts uh, a lot of discussion around uh, other forms of engagement beyond economic, which I'll, I'll get into in a second. And then the third form of engagement takes place from about 2018 
until 2022, maybe 2023, depending upon when you uh, think that the BRI has become less important in China's uh, international engagement. But that's really the BRI phase. Belt and Road uh, Initiative. First, Belt and Road Initiative, yeah. And China's big international strategy to partner with countries of the global south, the developing world, to show itself a, a good partner. And frankly, because China's economy is so full of subsidies and it's out of whack in terms of uh, producing excess capacity in several industrial areas, the BRI is a great way to dump some of that excess capacity for, for China's domestic production onto other countries uh, in a way that actually earns them a lot of soft power uh, credibility. So in this third phase, uh, which begins again around 2018, China starts to bring countries into that Belt and Road Initiative. The first country to sign on is Panama. It switches its diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the PRC, and it joins the, the Belt and Road Initiative right away. Since 2018, we've seen 22 countries in the region of 35 uh, accede to the BRI. You've got seven countries, John, that still recognize Taiwan in the region. They're not going to join the BRI anytime soon because to do so, they'd have to dump Taiwan diplomatically. And China and the BRI are not going to appeal to the United States and Canada anytime soon. So you've basically got 33 countries, subtract 22 from that. You've got like three or four countries that haven't joined that are eligible to join still, i.e. they don't recognize Taiwan. Um, and China has found ways to reach out to them beyond the BRI that brings them into the Chinese orbit. I'm thinking of countries like Mexico and, and Brazil. So th those are the distinct phases of, of Chinese engagement. I think the way I would describe the toolkit is that it leads with the economic engagement. It leads with the South-to-South -South relations. China is a developing country. China uh, can, can show you a model that has worked and has shown that there are alternative models of growth to the one that the U.S. is selling, to the one that U.S.-led institutions like the World Bank and the IMF are selling, and we can partner with you on that. So the economic component is front and center. But the economic usually parlays into some kind of political engagement. We've seen increasing activity by an organization called the International Liaison Department, which is a CCP party institution that reaches out to other political parties in, in, in the hemisphere invites them to Beijing for big parties, um, you know, tries to consolidate, you know, bro what they call brotherhood between political parties in the region. And some of the parties that have accepted invitations to go to Beijing are mainstream political parties in Latin America. Um, usually the readouts from these meetings are pretty blasé. We don't really know what happens there, but that party to party engagement is front and center. Political engagement usually parlays into uh, some kind of cultural engagement. We've seen lots of academic and journalist exchanges between students and journalists in the region and uh, in Beijing. We've seen the spread of Confucius Institutes throughout the, out the region, the teaching of Mandarin. Um, and then the cultural and the political a lot of times parlay into defense engagement, security engagement, military to military sales, uh, personnel rotations, military education. China has sought to copy the U.S. in terms of how it educates elites or the upper brass in a lot of countries, uh, armed forces. And uh, it's also sought to copy the U.S. in terms of what we call HADR, Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief. One of those great soft power tools that the United States uses to its great benefit because of its uh, tremendous logistics and ability to get to countries quickly. Uh, Southcom is often the first call on many countries 
speed dial when they have a humanitarian disaster or a natural disaster. China has copied that in many ways and is competing uh, in, in many ways in, in that space. So these things tend to tie together and one thing tends to lead to another in a, in a kind of multifaceted engagement. So it sounds like it's a, I mean, it's really a, a well-integrated approach that China is using all across uh, the LAC. And it's at various levels in, in various countries. I mean, it, it's not, it, you know, these pieces have reached their, their integrated apex in some places, whereas in others, uh, that cultural piece or that political piece might be a little bit shallower than, than it is in, in other. For example, in Mexico, a country where there's a lot of U.S. influence, uh, given all of the trade ties, USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, and so on, Chinese influence is, is less concerning than, say, in Argentina or in Brazil, where some of that full-scope engagement and all of these approaches have been have been integrated into a strategy. I would also say, you know, Panama, uh, in my mind, is probably one of the most critical nations in in the LAC. And it, and if you if we go back in history, when when the United States transitioned the control of the Panama Canal back to Panama, it did not take very long for China to get in there and take over as the the managing. Uh, entity for the Panama Canal Authority. So this goes back quite some time that China has actually been heavily invested in that critical uh, strategic choke point, uh, that the, the Panama Canal. I mean, and so much uh, maritime transit occurs uh, I- through the canal. Uh, it's a vitally important uh, area of the world to American economic interests. Uh, how do you see the, the 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 nation of Panama and the Panama Canal as a whole, and really the nations around that region? Are they really being targeted heavily by China right now because of the the strategic choke point that uh, the Panama Canal is? China has been very interested, John, in ports, port infrastructure, uh, particularly in, in what we would call dual use infrastructure, meaning that it has a civilian patina but it can also be used for logistics and resupply for the PLA Navy. Um, it's not the only port. It's not the only canal uh, infrastructure that the Chinese have expressed interest in. The Chinese, as I mentioned in that uh, congressional testimony that you've said, I-, I mentioned in that piece about how the Chinese have an interest in the Beagle Strait, in the Magellan Strait, in in South America, in the Patagonian tip in Argentina, which would be another passageway from the Atlantic to the Pacific, Pacific to the Atlantic, where it's large enough and deep enough to sail an aircraft carrier. So all of these these points of of infrastructure have been of interest to China. And one of the things that they've excelled at is presenting the the engagement as economic, as cooperative, as win-win, getting a contract for a Chinese state-owned enterprise to build a port, and then having the port actually serve that dual use. Knowing everything about the port, knowing uh, how it operates, sometimes even uh, owning the company that operates the port, nothing could could provide more reliability and certainty that the PLA Navy, if it needs it, could use that that port for supply uh, and and uh, and logistics than having uh, those things. And a, and a, support, a report last year by Maritime Executive looked at all of the known ports and canal infrastructure that the Chinese have been known to either build or a Chinese company maintains and discovered that about a third of them globally have served at some point as a, a hub for the PLA Navy to make a port call. So uh, you've got a one in three chance, basically, if you've got a port in your country that's either owned or operated by the PRC, 
the PLA maybe will be parking there at some point in time and using it as a logistics hub. The other thing that, you know, you brought up the Belt and Road Initiative, I think most people, when they hear that term, they really think about the kind of the path from China through Central Asia uh, into the Middle East and then into Europe uh, on a land route, and then uh, the the maritime road that kind of goes through the Indian Ocean, uh, kind of goes through uh, uh the Red Sea and whatnot into the Mediterranean, and then so you're trying to connect up the European markets and China's production uh, via land bridge and, and a maritime bridge. China has certainly expanded their influence into Africa. They're doing a lot of things in Africa, but this idea that Belt and Road has now expanded out to include uh, Central and South America right in the Western Hemisphere, that is a fundamental change for the, the scope of what Belt and Road Initiative really was envisioned by uh, for Xi Jinping um, a decade ago. Well, that's right, John. It started as something that was more immediate in China's uh, own neighborhood and then has expanded to uh, just about every continent now except for uh, Antarctica. And well, that's there some, too. <laughs> some analysts of, of Latin America and the Caribbean use this as a way of saying that China's engagement is often overblown, that some of us are alarmist, that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative arrived in Latin America and the Caribbean last, and that that in itself is a, a, a statement of the region's importance in China's overall foreign policy and global strategy, which is to say not that important since it arrived there last. Uh, I think that that's simply a function of distance between Latin America and the Caribbean and mainland China. I don't think it's a matter of not how, somehow not being important in their overall global strategy. And one of the things that we do very carefully is pay attention to China and Africa, because we feel as Latin America and the Caribbean watchers that how China acts in Africa is fundamentally not any different than how it acts in Latin America and the Caribbean. It simply does those strategies about two or three years, sometimes five years before it does them in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. So it can be very illustrative to watch how China approaches countries like South Africa and think, how might it approach Brazil, another power of, of similar size and wealth, uh, how it approaches Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, other countries on the continent, and think through how it might approach similar countries of similar power and population and global importance in Latin America and the Caribbean. That's been a bit, pretty fruitful strategy lately for trying to think of where China might go in, in the hemisphere. Yeah. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Ryan Berg from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he heads up the Americas program. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dr. Berg, we have about 12 minutes or so left uh, remaining in the show this morning. Uh, which nations in Latin America and Caribbean region are the most critical for the United States? In other words... Which nations in the Latin in Latin America and across the Caribbean must must the United States have, you know, quote unquote, on our side in this global competition with the People's Republic of China? Well, I would go back to what I said, John, about the the so-called tidy neighborhood theory. Uh, there is a, a sense in which our ability to project power and influence abroad relies on on having stability, security, economic prosperity at home. So I would start with the countries that are closest to us. Physical proximity matters, and that's. That's Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Um, I think uh, it's very important to have you know, those countries more or less in line with, with U.S. strategy and to see the U.S. as, as the preferred partner. Uh, South America, it's, it's a little bit more difficult because 
Um, it's further from the United States, but it's also where some of that economic complementarity that I mentioned earlier comes into play. Large economies like Brazil and Argentina, Peru and Chile offering what China's economy needs to grow in a way that's kind of in competition with the, with the United States on, on some levels. So it's more difficult to make that attractive offer when actually you're offering the same thing. Um, and, and there's complementarity between you and the PRC and less of it between you and, and the United States. But I would also like to introduce, I think, the, the concept uh, at this point of neutralization. You asked earlier, what are some of China's goals in, in the region? I think one of the things that China is looking to do is neutralize it. Uh, the, the analogy of a chessboard and great power competition gets used way too much. Uh, but if it, if it is really a chessboard and there are various pieces, of course, the pieces have agency themselves. They're not just being pushed around by the two, by the two players. But um, if, if you're thinking about it as a chessboard, China is not under the illusion that it can somehow erase or eviscerate hundreds of years of U.S. influence in its own shared neighborhood. All of the cultural, linguistic, and historical ties that bind us. Um, you know, this is this is one large family, really, if you think about it. There are people from all over the world in the U.S. They have a lot of ties to Latin America and the Caribbean, and I don't think China is naive about somehow being able to 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 eviscerate that. But what it does want to do is neutralize the region such that on the issues it really cares about, uh, the region is is not so much of a of a player. It, it's quiet. Uh, it censors itself out of concern for its immense economic ties to, to the PRC. And what I mean by this are issues like sovereignty and territorial integrity, international law, human rights violations. If China can get Latin America and the Caribbean, as I mentioned at the outset, a region largely comprised of democracies, to be silent about democracy issues globally, that can be a win for, for, for the PRC. In the, in the short and medium term. And then in the long term, I think one of the aims is to think about the region and start undermining some of that preferred partner status that the, that the U.S. has. But that's more of the long-term aim. The short and the medium term is to kind of take the region off the chessboard, prevent it from being an asset for the United States, keep it silent on some of the issues that we care most about. Um, and, and we've seen a preview of this, John, in terms of the region's very hesitant uh, response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The region has voted a couple times in the UN to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But other than that, there aren't too many countries that have spoken out really vocally. No countries in the region have joined the US sanctions campaign. Every country that was asked with old Russian military equipment to contribute to Ukraine's cause said thanks, but no thanks. In fact, the president of Colombia said he'd rather have this stuff become junk than to, than to give it to the Ukrainians. Lula, we know what he's done in Brazil, gone out of his way to, to try to court the Russians and say that there's a both sidesism to, to the war. So we're, we're trying to, we're starting to get now, I think, what a preview of neutralization would look like. Uh, and with respect to China, you know, maybe that's that's human rights in, in Xinjiang, uh, silence on that issue with the Uyghurs or silence on, on an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, whatever it might be, uh, really deference to, to some of China's goals. Um, w would be a, a short and medium-term win for them. You paint a very disturbing picture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's there's a couple of things here that come to mind for me. One is the the BRICS: Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, that has been in the news a lot over this past year. The economic power potential that 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 uh, the BRICS present. 
the idea of even uh, switching away from the U.S. dollar as the preferred currency to something else. Uh, I know India just made a huge oil purchase in rupees, which they've never done before, so that's a big change. Uh, but uh, So the BRICS, Brazil being a part of that, uh, Lula, and even before Lula, I mean, there's there's a lot of independence being demonstrated by Brazil as far as where they see uh, kind of the world order. They don't necessarily want to be in the U.S. tent or in the China tent. They want to be more independent and take advantage of both sides when they can. I think that's a lot of the global south is probably going to be uh, doing that. We'll, we'll actually have a show next week with uh, Dr. Uh, Rajan Menon. Uh, talking specifically about the global south and uh, the competition between the U.S. and China for influence in that in that region. So you've set us up very nicely by focusing on the South America, Central and South America, Caribbean uh, region today. The, this does bring to mind, though, the idea of the Monroe Doctrine. Now, you know, President Monroe says, hey, Europe, you have to stay out of the Western Hemisphere. It's the U.S.'s uh, territory, so to speak. Uh, you know, we, we are going to be, you know, the father figure in this region. And then you have the Roosevelt corollary to that that basically says we will intervene wherever we see it necessary for American national security interests. Uh, do you see us having basically stepped away from those old uh, kind of imperial times uh, uses of the Monroe or, or Monroe Doctrine or the Roosevelt corollary with regard to China? I mean, are we just so far beyond that now in the modern world that those those concepts don't really mean anything anymore as far as American hegemony in the Western Hemisphere? Well, I think that uh, the Monroe Doctrine is one of the most misunderstood doctrines that that, that exists out there. Uh, every president or almost every president has their own you know, so-called doctrine. Um, and, and if you, you dig into the history of the Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. as a young republic has no ability to protect power abroad in 1823 when this thing is promulgated. I mean, it's riven by internal disputes. It's still working on consolidating its own political institutions. Uh, and obviously, the question of slavery isn't yet resolved. And so there is no, you know, ability to, to intervene abroad. Really, the, the Monroe Doctrine was an aspirational statement yep. about what uh, the president at the time wanted to see, you know, U.S. power be. But also, uh, I think it's important to remember that it was an expression of solidarity with Latin American countries that were fighting at the time, most of them from with Spain, for their independence. It was a, an expression of solidarity with them, saying that we don't want to see European powers colonialize uh, colonize rather the, the the Western Hemisphere again. We want to see independent republics uh, in our own shared space, in our own shared neighborhood, uh, and we were expressing solidarity with them. Now, over the years, that doctrine has morphed into something you know much different, and it's sort of a buzzword still in in Latin America and in certain political circles for U.S. interference and intervention, uh, CIA-backed plots, and so on. But I think it's really taken on a, a life of its own, and and as you mentioned, John, it's really not until Roosevelt comes along that the U.S. has any ability to project that level of power and influence a, a, a further afield. So I think we're in a, a very different world now where we need to compete in, in different ways. Um, sure, Southcom has a very important presence in, in the region, but um, you know the U.S. is not going to intervene militarily anymore uh, in Latin America. It hasn't in a long time. Uh, we're dealing with an entirely different strategic context than we did uh, even during the uh, the world wars and, and the cold war one of the things that i maintain is is the same though is one of our fundamental uh, strategic goals which should be uh denial strategic denial preventing uh great power competitors from getting such a foothold in in the region that they can 
can threaten the homeland. And we saw it uh, in World War II with some German uh, encroachment of the region. We saw it in the Cold War when uh, the Soviet Union attempted to, to overthrow uh, governments by, by proxy or by aiding guerrilla groups. Um, and we haven't yet gotten to that point with, with China, but I think we need to look at it from, from that lens uh, and say that one of the goals should be to prevent uh, the PRC from gaining that level of, of football and, per, and from using the economic influence that it has to gain influence in, in other spheres. So it sounds to me, based on our discussion today, that the really the, the, the true power that you want to advocate for is American economic power and economic engagement with our partners uh, and friends all across uh, the LAC, Latin America and Caribbean region. Uh, so, Dr. Berg, in the time we have left this morning, I want to I give you the last word. We have about th- three minutes left or so. I think we can go a few minutes beyond the hour. Is that okay? Okay. I just got the thumbs up from, from the boss. So what else should our listeners know and understand about this competition between the U.S. and China for infer- influence across LAC, Latin America and Caribbean? Uh, a- any, any comments you'd like to make uh, at this time, you know, sort of close out our thoughts? You get the last word for the show today. I know that in your congressional, in your testimony, uh, you had a number of uh, policy recommendations uh, for Congress in, in things that the United States should do in the region. That, that's a lot to cover in the next uh, five minutes or so, but uh, I'll give you the last word. Wh- where do you want to take us? So I, I, just to respond to something that you said, John, I think um, a lot of the approach has to be economic, as you mentioned. Uh, the, the current conversation within the United States is very circumscribed in, in terms of our ability to talk about economic proposals and our ability to talk about economic engagement internationally and talk, most importantly, I think, about trade deals. Uh, but this is what our partners want in the region. They feel stuck. They feel like they've meet, they've reached a certain income status and they can't get out of this this trap. Uh, they're unable to meet a lot of the growing uh, demands of an expanded population, uh, of an increasingly mobile population, an increasingly digitally connected population, who understand how the other par- sections of par- parts of the world live. And if they don't get it in their in their current countries, they're on the move, right? They're on the move because they have those ties to the US or to Europe, uh, and they, they have the ability to get there. Um, so yes, a lot of the engagement has to be economic uh, in nature, but we can complement that economic engagement with uh, w- with political and defense, military to military, policing, security, educational exchanges, and, and so on, the full scope of, of engagement. Uh, but if we don't put an alternative on the table, as I say in the paper, a lot of times the Chinese alternative the Chinese offer is the best offer because it's the only offer. And without any type of competition, countries will be forced to make these tough trade-offs, go with the PRC and potentially compromise some of their sovereignty and autonomy. Because again, PRC is super adept at leveraging those weak points in a political system for real gain in, in other spheres. So I think we have to get back to the ability to have these kinds of discussions about trade, about trade agreements, about how America interacts with with the world, we have to have honest discussions. Trade has domestic and economic consequences. It has disruptions. But from my standpoint, that's not a question of whether we trade or not. It's a question of how we arrange our domestic politics and have programs to upskill and reskill and shuffle people into new uh, into new areas where they can be even more prosperous than they than they were previously got 17 programs across the federal government for 
for reskilling and upskilling and, and finding, trying to find, help find employment for unemployed people. Uh, these are the types of discussions that we have to have, not whether we trade or whether we don't trade, because our allies are moving forward. They're moving forward with, with whatever offers are on the table. And in many ways, we're absent in making that offer. And so just to close out, John, I worry that, uh, to, to sum it all up, I worry that for a long time, the muscle memory, so to speak, of the region was to go to the United States. It was just the reflex. You know, we've got challenge. We've got some kind of thing we want to partner on. Let's see what Washington says first. Slowly over time, that muscle memory changes. That reflex changes. The orientation goes east instead of north-south. And so all of a sudden, more countries in the region start to say, what does Beijing think about that? Oh, yeah. What does Beijing have on offer for us? <laughs> uh, and then we're in a whole different strategic context. Yeah. Dr. Ryan Berg from the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Are, are there any publications you'd like to point out to our listeners? I will say that uh, that your paper, uh, Insulate, Curtail, Compete, Sketching a U.S. Grand Strategy in Latin America and, and the Caribbean, that thing is great. Where can people find that, that paper? That paper is on our website, CSIS.org. You can find uh, the Americas Program across the top. You can search for all the different regions of the world. And it's one of the featured papers on our, our website. Um, as I mentioned in the opening, we got six thematic pillars. We write on a lot of stuff. The only other piece that I would mention, John, that, that's highly relevant to this conversation is a, a piece that predated the Insulate, Curtail, Compete report uh, about the role of democracy promotion in the region in great power competition. The argument is basically that the more democracy we get in the region, the better we're off uh, in terms of great power competition. So there's a real interest that we have in sort of fortifying and promoting democracy uh, in the region and in this great power competition with China. That's the only other paper at this point that I would highlight. Okay. Uh, what courses are you teaching at uh, Catholic University or over at, uh, at Oxford this year? So I'm actually taking a little break from, from teaching this semester because I've got a pretty intense travel schedule. And uh, we've got a, an intense opening to the new fiscal year, which will start on October 1st. But I, I will note that uh, one of the, the things that I've also started doing in the last two years is teaching uh, incoming diplomats at the Foreign Service Institute oh, great. who are ready to go to post in the region. Uh, I coordinate the Brazil course at the FSI. So if you're a, an incoming Foreign Service officer and you've gotten lucky enough to draw Brazil <laughs> as one of your uh, one of your options, definitely select it. Uh, go to Rio, go to Brasilia, go to Sao Paulo. You'll have me as your professor for your continuing education at FSI. <laughs> That's great. So, Dr. Reinberg, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning here on National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.